them since we didn't get to it last week. Chapter 29. And it's uh, another woe. There were seven woes that Isaiah gave in, in the book of Isaiah. Back in, uh, in chapter 5. And this is the third woe. And it's a woe to Jerusalem. In Isaiah 5, 8 through 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my, high, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your ways. And it's probably a well-known scripture by all of you. But you know what? It's one that I think that we need to hear over and over and over again. Because when things happen in our life that don't make sense, we start saying, why God? And we start asking questions as if we would understand if God told us. Therefore, we have to be reminded, as he said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not yours ways. Because I am higher than the earth And my ways are higher than yours, and also are my thoughts. God tells us in his word that we won't always understand the whys or the whats that he does. Why he does things and what the things he does. But one thing we can always do is trust him. And if he surprises us with, with, you know, trouble in our lives, he'll also surprise you with the joy that he'll bring to you out of that trouble. Now, you may, have had, you may have a hard time believing that right now or while you're going through a difficult time. But what seems impossible to you, remember, with God, all things are possible. And you have to remember that the impossible is God's specialty. And what you need to know is that your greatest insight or your greatest strength or the, the victory that you might, be, that you might experience When you hit bottom, it's because you can't look anywhere else but up. That thing that you might be looking for may come when you are really down and out. And the most helpful and productive thing that might happen to you is that is when your wall, your world falls apart. And sometimes that's what we need, believe it or not. That's what it takes sometimes because we think that we have life and God all figured out. And sometimes we need God to kind of throw a monkey wrench into the midst of our life. Because we know a little bit about God because he's told us about himself in his word. And sometimes without noticing and without meaning to, we can come to a place in our life where we feel that if we know God in any way, we should be able to explain everything. But we can't. And there are times when life doesn't make sense to us. By the things that he allows and the things that he does and the things that he's doing. That's why we need to humble ourselves and just say, we don't understand sometimes, Lord. We don't understand your wisdom. And then just accept those times as part of his mysterious will for our life. And when God catches you off guard and you can't see the whys for what he's doing. And it doesn't make sense at all. You know what? You are seeing something. You are seeing something, though you, you can't see it and you don't understand it. You are seeing something. And remember, God is moving. God is at work all the time. 
And when you go through those puzzling times in your life, remember what Job said. In chapter 23, verses 8 through 10, he says, Look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I can't perceive him. And when he works on the left hand, I can't see him. And when he turns to the right hand, I can't see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job says, man, if I go backward, if I go forward, if I go to the left or go to the the right, I couldn't, he said, I couldn't see God. I couldn't even get a, a small glimpse of him. But what we have to remember is though we can't see him, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. But Job was, Job's difficulty was that he had questions that he wanted to ask God. And he couldn't see God. He couldn't find God. But though Job couldn't see God, here's the most important thing. God knew where Job was. God knew where Job was. Job was in the fiery furnace. And when God puts his people into the, into the furnace, furnace, he doesn't just leave them there and then and abandon you. He keeps his eye on you. And he knows how long we need to be in the furnace. And he knows how hot it needs to be. And he's always controlling the temperature. Got a, we have a great example in Daniel chapter 3 with Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they refused to serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods and worship the image that he made, Nebuchadnezzar was so angry with those three guys that he ordered them to be thrown into the fiery furnace. But then when they were thrown in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in amazement. He calls out to his advisors, hey, didn't we throw three men in the furnace? He said, yes, your majesty. He says, well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire and they're, they're unharmed. And he says, the fourth looks like a god. Notice again, God doesn't stand by when you're in the fire and, and look from the sidelines. He's in, that's, that's the important thing in your room. He's in the fire with you. He doesn't abandon you. And then Nebuchadnezzar shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. And it says they stepped out of the fire and all of the officials went over there and they gathered around the three guys and and, and they said the fire didn't even touch them. He said, they they said, they don't even, they don't even smell like smoke. And then King Nebuchadnezzar said, praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's the same God that you serve tonight. God sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. But we might ask, why does he do it to begin with if he's going to rescue us anyway? Or why doesn't he turn down the heat or take us out of the furnace? But when we ask those questions, it's, it could be signs of doubt and unbelief. The important thing is, as Job said, he knows the way that I take. And when he's tested me, I will come out like gold. The furnace can only make the gold purer and brighter. So what you're seeing is that God is God and you are not. You're experiencing him like never before. He wants to take you to a whole new level of understanding. And you're learning what it means to trust God and to surrender your life to God rather than trying to be in control. Hey, if God never shook us up, 
we wouldn't really know him. Because we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between our ideas about God and the reality and truth of God. Back, to, uh, back in chapter 28, verse 21, Isaiah tells us that God does strange and unusual things. Here in chapter 29, Isaiah tells us more about the strange and unusual things that he does. And this is, and this is the, uh, the surprising way that he uses us. Remember, God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. God used a whale to speak to Jonah. God used a burning bush to speak to Moses. God ordered ravens to feed Elijah at the brook Cherith. So remember, God never gives his children what they deserve, and we can thank him for that. And he doesn't, you know, necessarily give them what they want. But he will give you what you need. If you need encouragement, he'll give it to you. If you need conflict, he'll bring it. If you need strength, he'll strengthen you. And, and, and if you don't know already, we are complicated people. <laughs> we have a lot of issues. And we have a lot of needs. And we really don't know what's best for us. And to make things even worse, we have, as Jeremiah said, a heart that is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? We think we know our heart. But we don't. Only God knows our heart. And we have to remember that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember, he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Never, Lord. Never. Okay, Peter. So God can see whether or not you need drama in your life or you need peace. And so he'll interrupt our lives. He'll get into our business. He'll get into our thoughts with blessings. Either pleasant or not so pleasant. Either way, if they're coming from God, they're blessings. They're still blessings. And God's word gives us a good enough understanding about him so that we can make the changes that we need for however God wants us to deal with, however God wants to deal with us. So we need to stop resenting and resisting him and just quietly surrender to the renewing and refreshing work of the Holy Spirit that he wants to do in us. So let's begin now with chapter 29, verse 1. And it says, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel the city where David dwelt. And year to year, let feasts, let feasts come around. Isaiah says here, what sorrow awaits Ariel. Now, Ariel was another name for Jerusalem, the city of David. He says, year after year, you celebrate your feast. Isaiah is talking about Jerusalem here. Like I said, the city of David or Mount Zion. And we can see that down in verse, uh, further in verse 8. The word Ariel means altar hearth. Altar hearth. In other words, the stone service of the altar where the fire would burn up the sacrifices. Where the sinners worship a holy God through the substitutionary sacrifice. But when Isaiah says here in verse 1, add year to year, he's saying year after year you celebrate your feasts. Now Isaiah is being sarcastic here about their worship. He says, every year you guys have your worship festivals, you have your celebrations, and they're so extravagant, and they're so beautiful. He says, but they're so empty. Like Paul said, having a form of godliness, but but denying its power, that is rejecting the power that could give them or could make them godly. Isaiah is saying, hey, you know what, guys? Go ahead. Have fun. 
Go on with your religious routine. He says, but you know what? It's not doing you any good. And that's because Jerusalem doesn't understand the wonderful privilege that they have to worship the true and the living God and the danger of worshiping him the wrong way. Now, people say, you know, how can you say that people worship God the wrong way? They should have their right to worship him any way they want. But the Bible tells us there is a right way and a wrong way to worship God. And and again, people say that we should just leave others alone as long as they're worshiping God. But Jesus said in John 4, 23 and 24, he says, the time is coming and and is indeed now here. He said, when, notice, when true worshipers, so when he says when, when, when true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit, that means there's also false. The Father is looking for those, notice, who will worship him that way. In spirit and in truth. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The God that they worship is a holy, consuming fire. And God is both. He's an all-consuming fire, but at the same time, he's full of abundant grace and enduring mercy. And the only protection that anyone has from his holy wrath is God's holy love in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's what spares us from the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus Christ is the love of God, our substitute on his cross, the altar of the cross. In other words, the only way to escape God's wrath is found in God's love. But here, the worship of these people, it's not even affected one way or another by his wrath or his God. I'm sorry, his love. They weren't affected by his wrath or his love. They don't rejoice in his presence. They don't fear his presence. They could care less. They're just cold and going through the motions. So to Isaiah, they were just wasting their time. And that's why he tells them in verse 2. Notice, yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. Isaiah says that God says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. And there's going to be a lot of weeping and sorrow because Jerusalem's going to become her name. Ariel, which means an altar covered with blood. Jerusalem, for sure, is going to be a place where God's consuming fire burns hot. It's the same for people today. Will God consume our worship? That is, will he eat up our worship? Will he soak up our worship? Or will he consume us in our sin? It's going to be one or the other. Because worship without meaning, that doesn't mean anything to God. And you know what? That's, that, that's when God steps in. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 1.13. He said to the people, Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. That's God speaking. Verse 3. He says, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. And I will raise siege works against you. God says, I'm going to be your enemy. I'm going to surround you. I'm going to attack the walls of Jerusalem and I'm going to build siege towers around it and destroy it. God's going to attack his people. Why? Because it's needed more than we know. And whatever instrument God uses, it's God that we have to deal with. And then when he gets us where he wants us, that's when we'll call on him. And that's the whole purpose of 
of our trials and difficulties. He puts us in a place where, where, where he wants us, and then we call upon him. Verse 4. You shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground, your speech shall be low out of the dust, your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. He says, then, deep from the ground, you're going to speak, deep from the earth, you're going to speak, from low in the dust, your words are going to come. He says, your voice will whisper from the ground like a ghost called up from the grave. Why is it that we have to wait many times until God, God rubs our face in the dirt before we start behaving. And when I say that, you know, it, it, it's, don't picture God grabbing you by the neck and then rubbing your face in the ground. He allows us to, to do that ourselves. He allows us to get to that place. So many times we, we have to wait till God, in a sense, rubs our face in the, in the dirt before we start behaving. Because that's when God now becomes more meaningful to us. But if you surrender to him and you let him do things his way, it will be a lot less stressful and a lot less painful. When you admit defeat, God can take that desire to be in control from your heart and then you'll be free and things will turn around for you. Verses 5 through 8. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant. Suddenly you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her shall be like a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams and look, he eats, but he awakes and his, his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and look, he drinks, but he awakes and indeed he is faint and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Notice how he describes how it's going to be for those who fight against God. He says in verses 5 through 8, your true enemies are going to be crushed into dust. He said, all of your attackers are going to be blown away like the chaff, like chaff in the wind. And God says, then in an, in an instant, I'm going, to, I'm going to act on your behalf. I'm going to act for you with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with a whirlwind and storm and a consuming fire. He says, all the nations that are fighting against Jerusalem, they're going to vanish. They're going to disappear like a dream. Those who are attacking your walls, they're going to vanish like a vision in the night, he said. A hungry person dreams of eating, but they wake up still hungry. A, a thirsty person uh, dreams of drinking, but they still, they're still weak from thirst when they wake up in the morning. He says, it's going to be the same thing with your enemies who attack Mount Zion. What Isaiah is saying is that the same instrument that God may afflict his own people with, God can turn their power into dust and to chaff. And in verse 5, it says he can do it. Notice, in an instant, suddenly he can do it. All by himself, without any help from us. God spoils the plans of those who come against his purpose and come against his people. How many times has God's enemies and the enemies of his church waited anxiously to see the church defeated and disappear? Today, the hostilities of this world are being made known by their attacks against the church. 
the world is trying to put an end to what the church can say and what it can do. They say we're intolerant. They accuse us of hate crimes just because we speak the truth against sin. And they blame the church for some of the social problems today. But they're waiting in vain for the destruction of the church because Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we have to remember that. The God who afflicts us can also take care of himself and us. He knows just what to do every step of the way. So we should just surrender to him and let him have his way. Isaiah is so frustrated with the spiritual laziness that he sees in in, in his people that he cries this out in verses 9 through 10. Notice, he says, pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. Isaiah says, go ahead, be stupid. Go ahead and be blind. He says, you're getting drunk, but without wine. He says, stagger around without drinking a drop. He says, the Lord has made you drowsy and ready to fall into a deep sleep. He said, the prophets should, just, should, should be the eyes of the people, but God has blindfolded them too. They've fallen into a deep sleep too. Now, did God really make them sleepy? How did he do it? Well, he kept giving Israel light. But as he gave them light, they kept rejecting it. They wouldn't accept the truth that God gave them. They couldn't see the truth, which showed they were blind. And that's the way God God puts people to sleep and the way that he shows that they're blind. Even the prophets and the princes, which were the rulers, they didn't expect God to deliver them. They were just as blind about the future as God's enemies. Isaiah says, they were like men who were crazy drunk. And he says, go ahead. Be blind if if that's what you want. But you've offended God to the point that even as you continue to worship him, he'll darken your minds from understanding his word. Verses 11 and 12. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I can't, for it is sealed. And then the book is delivered to one who is is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. Therefore, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with me, draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. All of the future events in this vision are like a sealed book to the people of Israel and the leaders. When you give it to those who are are literate, who can read, they say, well, you know, we can't read the book because it's sealed. Now, come on. you, You can open the seal and read the book if you want to. And then when you give it to those who are illiterate, they'll say, well, we don't know how to read. 
Verses 11 and 12 are the key to what Isaiah is saying here. You give the book to men who are, who are literate. They said, I can't read it because it's sealed, which is an excuse. You know, there are those who say, hey, well, you know, you really shouldn't read the Bible. You can't read the Bible because, you know, you really can't understand it. That's what you hear a lot today. I can't read it because it's sealed, which again was an excuse. They didn't want to read it. You gave, Isaiah said, you give the book to him that's illiterate, but he can't read it because he hasn't learned to read. He doesn't make this excuse, I can't read it because it's sealed. He makes the excuse because he lacks the desire to learn. So neither the literate or illiterate among the Jews cared to search the scriptures and the prophecies that were in them about their Messiah. And neither of them understood the, the, the prophecies and the scriptures. These things were hid from the wise as well as from the uneducated people because of they did their lack of desire to learn. And because the word of God is light, it gives us direction. It helps us to see and to discern where we're going in life. The psalmist said in one, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a lamp to my path. Without the word of God in our life, we become spiritually blind. We're like a ship without a rudder in the ocean of life. And sooner or later, we are going to end up crashing on the rocks. Isaiah, the, the, the blindness that Isaiah is talking about here is, is the tiring, unthinking, routine, and repetitious worship of God's covenant people. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore, the Lord said, And as much as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of the prudent men shall be hidden. Jesus applied this passage to the Pharisees who worship, they worship God to the letter. Every I, every T. They obeyed God's word to the letter. In other words, they were saying all the right things and they were doing all the right things. But their fear of God, it wasn't from their heart. It was taught by men. They were taught to fear God. The fear of God was just an idea in their heads. It was man's idea. The fear of God wasn't a spirit-given conviction that changed their hearts. The people professed that they were close to God, but they were disobedient and they were just going through, emotion, through the motion so for the sole purpose that God wouldn't judge them, that he wouldn't bring judgment on them. And a lot of people think that way too. Well, you know, if I go to church and I do all the right things that, you know, I'm going to go to heaven. Not without Jesus Christ, you're not. Not without a holy life in Christ, hidden in God. The people's religion in Isaiah's day, it had become routine instead of real. And you know what? We are all capable of slipping into a routine when we come to church to worship. 
And then we neglect to give God our love and our devotion, true love and devotion. If we want to to be called God's people, we have to be obedient. We have to worship Him honestly and sincerely. So the people in Isaiah's day, they were only fooling themselves. They weren't fooling God. God knows. As I said earlier, He sees the heart. He knows what's in the heart. That's why our heart is so deceitful. It deceives us into thinking, I'm okay with God. If I do this, this, and this, I'm okay with God. And when worship just becomes an outward appearance, and it becomes routine, it offends God. Isaiah says that God deals with this kind of worship in an unusual way, in an unusual way. Look at the first part of verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. This is how God says he's going to deal with people like this. He says, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. Now, the words marvelous work and wonder in the Old Testament mean miracle. God says he's going to bring the wisdom of the wise to nothing. Look at the second part of verse 14. He says, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the understanding of, the, of their prudent man shall be hidden. In 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul warns us that people have, all right, they, they have a form of godliness, but their lives don't show the power of God. They go to church obediently, but not faithfully. Their, their body's in their building, but their heart is somewhere else. Their religion is right on target, but it's not genuine. We need the power of God to get victory over the temptations that we face every day in life. We, you know, we need God's power. That's what's so important about the Holy Spirit. We need God's power. We need the Holy Spirit to be the husbands and the wives and the young people and the Christians and the servants that God wants us to be. And if we're in a deep, a spirit of deep sleep, like the people were here mentioned in verse 10, God can wake us up and God will wake us up. And if we confess to God our emptiness and we bring it to him, he'll do a miracle. He'll do a miracle of his grace in our heart. Verse 15 and 16. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he didn't make me? Or shall the thing formed say, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Isaiah says, what sorrow is waiting for those who try to hide their plans from God. Who do their evil deeds in the dark and say, God can't see us. He doesn't see me. He doesn't know what's going on. Isaiah said, how foolish can you be? He's the potter. And he's definitely greater than you, the clay. Should the created thing say to the one who made it, which is the potter, he didn't make me? Does a jar ever say the potter who made me is stupid? 
Here Isaiah speaks of God's sovereignty. And I'm so glad that what I do or don't do cannot stop and doesn't stop God from what he has planned to do. Because I can look back even in my Christian life and think of the things that I thought God wanted me to do and and stopped it and thank God. Who knows where I'd be? He carries out his plan in my life. Isaiah here is showing the, the people's practical atheism. The thinking of the people in Isaiah's day is the way a lot of America thinks today. Many people are practical atheists. Warren Wiersbe says, they may claim to believe there's a God, but they live as though he didn't exist. Today is an attitude of independence. Nobody tells me what to do. No one tells me how I should live. And and Isaiah says, who sees us anyway? Who, Who knows us? Like the people in Isaiah's day, people think today that God can't see them and that he doesn't know what's going on. Even that he doesn't care. The people of Jerusalem tried to hide their plans from God as if God couldn't see them. Verses 17 through 21. 1,000 shall flee at the... I'm reading the wrong verse. I'm wrong, wrong chapter there. Kind of ahead of myself. Okay, chapter 17 through 21. Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among them shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. Who, who, make, who make a man an offender by word and lay a snare for him who, who reproves in the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. Isaiah says here that by, but before long, he says the dense forest is going to become like a farmland. And he, and he says the deaf are going to become, will be, you know, will be able to hear a book being read aloud and the blind who have been living in darkness will open their eyes to see. So poor people, once again, will, will, will find the happiness with the Lord. The holy God of Israel will, will, will give it to them. It will be the end of those who oppress others and, and show contempt for God. He said every sinner is going to be destroyed and God's going to destroy those who slander others. Those who prevent, prevent the punishment of criminals and those who tell lies to keep honest men from getting justice. Now we look into the future here. Isaiah is looking to the time that will come when there will be honor and glory in Jerusalem and in the land. God is not through with Jerusalem yet. It will be rebuilt again. And then it will be the city of God. The city of David, Mount Zion. The forests of Lebanon are a picture of man at his best and of his power. But Isaiah says, God's going to cut it down. 
He's going to humble and he's going to make it an ordinary field, just plain and ordinary. And he says, and Isaiah says, in this ordinary field, I see it flourishing with growth to come. And someday it will really be a mighty forest. The things that man values today really don't have any value. The things that man values today doesn't make a lot of sense. But God is promising here to change things and to put them in the right order. The new world will be known for for its joy, for its understanding, for its fairness and its praises to God. And this new joy will complete God's covenant with Abraham. And then Isaiah explains, notice in verses 22 through 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name. And hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complain will learn doctrine. Isaiah explains in these these verses here that that's why the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the people of Israel, my people are no longer going to be ashamed and they're not going to turn pale with fear. Because when they see their many children and all the blessings that I've given them, they're going to recognize the holiness of the one of Israel. They're going to stand in awe of me, of the God of Jacob. And then the rebellious are going to gain understanding and complainers will accept instruction. So in closing, salvation has been God's plan from the very beginning. Salvation started, salvation continues, and salvation finishes in his sovereign grace. All Christians are waiting for this wonderful day to come. And we need to trust him to bring that day, no matter what troubles may be along the way. Father, we thank you for this book. As always, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its its beauty. We thank you for its instruction, Lord. We thank you for, for, for its spirit, Lord, your spirit. And Father, help us to receive it, God. It's your revelation to man. It teaches us about who you are. It teaches us about your love and your goodness toward us, God. It teaches us about our Savior and your spirit. So Father, help us to to open our hearts to you, God. To allow you to come in, God. And let us not be as these people that Isaiah was talking about, God. When we come into this building, may it be more than just our bodies, Lord. May it be our heart, our soul, and our mind, God. And may we be not only obedient, but faithfully obedient, God. May we allow the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us into all truth. May we allow his power into our life, that we would have a spirit of conviction, even in the smallest things, Lord. May we not justify any sins whatsoever. But may we call sin, sin. And may we be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit when he says, go, we go. And when he says, stop, we stop. When he says to do something, that we do it. And when he says not to do it, we don't do it. 
for that is a true, true meaning of life in Christ. It's knowing that the power of Christ and his resurrection. So Lord, may you bless your people. May you have your hand upon them. May you protect them this week, cover them this week, God, from all harm, disease, enemies, violence, whatever it might be, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. We thank you for your goodness in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just a, a repeat of the announcements that we've, we've had. Again, October 3rd, our baptism after second service. And you can sign, for that, sign up for that in the foyer. And also our Monday night class, um, the Growing in Christ, uh, will meet on September 27th. So again, if you're interested in that, it's for new believers or those who just want to grow more in Christ. Sunday morning, uh, well, uh, Kathy and I are going to go away for a week. We haven't gone anywhere for a long time, for more than a